Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. All right. So as I mentioned, we are on Hebrews chapter 7, um, Melchizedek. And so this is, one thing I want to mention is, we actually saw him reference Melchizedek a couple of chapters ago, but it was interesting. He referenced it in relationship to sort of wanting to move on to something big. He said, let's talk about Melchizedek. And then he stopped himself, you might remember. He stopped himself and he said, oh, I can't talk to you about Melchizedek yet because you're so slow to learn. You're not even trying to learn, right? You're just, you're just stuck in some things. And he says, it's time to leave aside the elementary teachings about the Messiah and instead embrace the fullness of the teachings of who Jesus is as the Messiah. And so we talked about that, how we sometimes think that we're supposed to move from the gospel to something else. But the author of Hebrews is saying the opposite. They were wanting to move, uh, they were wanting to move from the gospel back to the law. And he was telling them, you can't do that. He wanted to explain something to them about Melchizedek, but because they were still stuck on the, the, uh, the basic pictures of the Old Testament, he couldn't go forward. So Here's what they were stuck on, and here's why he feels like now he can move forward and talk about Melchizedek. What they were stuck on was this idea that the Old Testament, the law, the priesthood, and the law that came with it, that that was the end. That that was everything that there really was. And that when the Messiah came, he would simply fit into that system. That he would be part of that exact same system. And and it makes sense, because God had instituted it, right? And so if the Messiah comes and suddenly changes everything... Why doesn't that mean that the old system was bad or was wrong? And the author of Hebrews has been helping them or trying to help them understand that no, it wasn't that it was bad or wrong, that God changed his mind, that it was incorrect. It's none of those. It's that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we see in the Old Testament. And he wants them to get a new perspective on the law, to see it as a a signpost leading to their destination, as pictures and shadows and hints of the substantive nature of the gospel. Um, almost as if shadows being cast backwards, and they've been living in the shadows, and now he wants them to see what's been casting that shadow all this time. And, and that's the thing that they were stuck on, was, well, they were thinking they had to hold on to all these things as the end. But he's telling them, these are, the, these are the roadmaps, these are the signposts, these are the shadows and the types and the pictures that lead us to our destination. And so what he wants to do is he wants to talk about Melchizedek as a very, very interesting uh, and sort of incredibly developed shadow and picture of Jesus. And for a character that only gets two verses, the author of Hebrews draws a lot out. Now, you could say, is that fair? Is that fair to do? I think it's entirely fair. Again, once you accept the premise that everything we see in the Old Testament is leading up to the fulfillment in Jesus. And so you can ask yourself, especially without any other sort of purpose given to us for these two verses, it's reasonable for the author of Hebrews to say the whole reason those verses are there is to point to us some things about Jesus we would otherwise not really grasp. It goes further than that, though, and we'll kind of see that as we go. In fact, the, the way it goes further is, is kind of this. They were seeing, again, the Old Testament not only is the end, but it's kind of the deepest truths. And they are very deep truths because they come from God, and God is infinite. So the things we see in the law, the things that they do tell us about, about things that are so important, like that we should care for the oppressed and we should not take advantage of the poor and we should love people and we should love God. And obviously, these are deep, 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 deep things, right? 
And they were seeing them as very deep things. And the author doesn't want to say you're wrong. But he wants to say we can go deeper still. And not only were they deep things, but they were old things. See, the Hebrews were saying the, the law goes back to our beginnings. We were pulled out of Egypt, and we were taught the law in the desert, and that's our beginnings. Very often, and God even encouraged us in some ways, their identification as a nation comes from the moment they were pulled out of Egypt. And so they think of that as sort of the oldest laws, the deepest laws. So how could anything, you know, anything that ancient can't be just easily overturned? Fair enough. What it reminds me of, though, is in the Chronicles of Narnia, and I mentioned this a few weeks back also, but in the Chronicles of Narnia, after Aslan, some people remember this, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is, is there's a, a law the White Witch brings up that, that Edmund, the betrayer, would have to be executed, but there is a law that says that Aslan could die in his place. And the witch thinks she's winning because she knows this deep magic, that the, that the lion can die in his place. And so Aslan does die in his place. And while they're mourning him, he comes back to life. <laughs> and he comes to Susan, I mean, he comes to Lucy, and she says, I don't understand. What about the deep magic? And he says, there's something that the witch, the queen, did not know, and that, the white queen, that there is a deeper magic still, which says that when an innocent party sacrifices, then time will run backwards and even life will overcome death. And the, the point, though, is this idea that he wasn't, he didn't break the law. He didn't discount the deep magic, but he knew of a deeper magic. And what the author of Hebrews wants to tell the Hebrews is, you're right about the law. It's important, and the priesthood, it's important. But there's an older priesthood. That's what he wants to tell them. There's a priesthood that's even older than the Levitical priesthood, ordained by God, instituted by God. And it's a priesthood which is better, partly because it's more ancient, but also because it's just deeper. It touches on who Jesus is, and Jesus is part of the order of that priesthood rather than the one under which they've been laboring to which they want to hold on. All right, that's kind of the framework. That's where we're going. So I wanted to kind of give you all that because this is sort of the advanced class. But remember, as we move into it, it's never going to be something that will be adding to what Jesus did. The advanced class of the author of Hebrews is always Jesus. Jesus is always as far as we can get. He is the infinite conclusion. And we're going to see that even here more significantly, that we don't need to look for the next thing because we've got Jesus. And I think as we walk through Hebrews 7 and we see what he says about Melchizedek, I really think it's really fascinating, and I, and I hope that you uh, kind of enjoy it as much as I do. Um, and so he's going to use Melchizedek as a key illustration to make the point that the law, that as they know it, was never the deepest part of our relationship with God. That there's something deeper in our relationship with God that even predates their understanding. That moment when they're led out of Egypt and shown the law in the wilderness, that is not the beginning. That's not where it starts. And if you pick up your Bible, you'll see that's not where it starts, <laughs> in fact. And so he's going to, even as a nation, that's not where they start. And so he's going to go back and he's going to show them that. So first, let's take a look in Genesis. This is the sum total. We can actually fit the entire story of Melchizedek on our screen here. So this is what it says in Genesis chapter 14. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying... Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand, and then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this is a, a, an interesting story. The thing about it is there's a context, but none of it has anything to do with Melchizedek. So here's the context. Abram, who becomes Abraham later, so this is even before his name is changed to Abraham. Abram, though, 
he wants to go rescue his son Lot, his, not, sorry, his nephew Lot. Lot has been kidnapped, taken prisoner really, by a um, conquering king. And he wants to rescue Lot. So Abram is actually pretty powerful, pretty strong, pretty influential. So he rounds up six kings, surrounding kings, and he says, let's go get this guy. I want my nephew back. You guys can have everything else. So they go in and they, they rescue Lot. It works. Abram's plan is victorious and the kings all love him. And so while he's there dividing the spoils, and actually Abram gives everything back to the other kings, but as he's dividing the spoils, it talks about this other king, the king of Salem, who shows up, and he's not only a king, but he's a priest. And he's a priest specifically of God Most High, which, again, given the nature that this is written by perhaps Moses or whoever it's written by is, is a Hebrew, it means God, the Most High God. So somehow this guy we've never seen before, Melchizedek, he's, he is a priest, in a time when the priesthood hasn't even happened yet, right? The official one hasn't even happened yet. This predates Moses by many years. He's a priest of the Most High God, and he comes to Abram, and Abram actually tithes to him. And that's the totality of the story. Then it goes right back on with Abram's life, and we never really hear what's the point of this, where did Melchizedek come from, why is it here, what's going on? And so that's what the author of Hebrews is going to grab. And you might say, why grab a piece of a story that is so obscure? Well, you're going to see that the author of Hebrews actually says the obscurity of the story, the lack of context, is part of what makes it intriguing. Because why is it in the scripture, right? You can't point to any other purpose except perhaps to tell us about Jesus. So here's what he says. So now we're in Hebrews 7. He starts off by saying this Melchizedek, and he's just going to summarize what we just read, which summarizing two verses is, takes just about as long. This Melchizedek was the king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, so that's the story. But now, he's going to go on, and he's going to start pointing out things about this story that we may not have recognized. He goes on and he says, first, right? You can tell he's got a list of things, because he starts with first. <laughs> so he says, first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Well, that's interesting, because we know that Jesus came to bring righteousness, and he's referred to the Messiah, is referred to as king of righteousness. So right off the bat, the author of Hebrews is saying, even his name is indicated in an indication to us that he's a type, he's a, he's, a, he's a prophecy in and of himself, a picture of the Messiah to come, king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Two interesting things about that. We're told he's the king of Salem. Salem, at the time that he's with Abraham, is actually Jerusalem. It's where Jerusalem will be. And so he's the king of Jerusalem, even before Jerusalem is a thing. And king of Salem means king of peace. And here again, the, the Messiah is known as the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace. So he's pointing out that Melchizedek already has all these sort of signifiers on it. We know nothing about him, yet we know that, right? Um, <clears throat> so he's the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace, and he's the King of Jerusalem. All things which could be very easily said about Jesus. But this is just the beginning. He goes on and he says this. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. See, we may ask, why does this story exist at all? He just drops in the middle of this story about Abraham. There's no context. It's kind of hard to understand why it's even here. What is it telling us? It's not like Abraham continues to come to this guy and give him tithes. What is going on? And one point is that the author of Hebrews is saying the fact that it doesn't tell us anything about him gives us this impression of Melchizedek. I don't think he means it literally, but in, in, a, in a metaphorical way, and certainly in the context of the story as we know it, Melchizedek is a man without a beginning or an end. He, we see him as he's a priest, and he's stuck in that moment forever. He's a priest forever. He has no mother. He has no father. 
for, for you, you've, you've seen the Old Testament, genealogy is a big deal, right? We always know who's the son of who and who begot who, right? It all is there. No, nothing from Melchizedek. He's just here. And then he's just gone. And it's as if he's just always here. He's a man without time, right? He has no beginning. He has no hand. He has no father. He has no mother. He has no genealogy. Just like Jesus. <laughs> just like God. Just like the Son of God. And he's a priest forever. He's not a priest for a little bit of time. He doesn't cease being a priest as far as, again, kind of metaphorically in the way the story unfolds. He doesn't cease becoming a priest when the Levites come online because he's not even a priest of their order. And this is what we're going to see as we go forward, is that as the author of Hebrews continues to go through chapter 7, what he's going to do is he's going to paint a picture of two priesthoods. He's saying to the Hebrews, there's not just one ordained order of priesthood by God, there's two. And the one you miss, the one you've missed is the one that comes before the law, which you're so stuck on. The priesthood you haven't paid attention to is the one that was shown in Scripture before Abraham even had children, who then became the tribes, who then were led out of Egypt, who then became, got the law. So there's the priesthood of Melchizedek, and there's the priesthood of Levi. Because we're told in the, in the desert, through Moses, it was Aaron's children would become the Levites. Or were the Levites, sorry. Aaron was a descendant of Levi. And the Levites would be the ones that would be the priests. And so he's saying we have two orders. We have the order of the priesthood of Levi and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he's going to go through and he's going to give us the differences between the two. And that's what we're going to walk through as we go through this chapter. It's really pretty simple when you put it that way. So I hope we've been able to frame it in a way which will kind of bring this all uh, to focus for you as we go. So what he wants to say is, he not only wants to say that there are two priesthoods, but he wants to say the order of Melchizedek is the better priesthood. And he starts right off the bat. He says, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder, right? Abraham, our patriarch, the father of all of us, he actually gave a tenth of his plunder to this guy, but we don't know who he is. That's a sign of honor. That's a tithe to somebody who's above you in authority. That means he's really great, because as great as we think Abraham is, Melchizedek was honored by Abraham as even greater. goes on and he says, now the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priests to, priest to collect a tenth from the people. So the priests that you honor so much, they collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also were descended from Abraham. He's like, the priests, they collect a tenth from the people, but in reality, they're just you too. I mean, we're all descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Everything that we look at, everything that defines us, being led out of Egypt, getting the law, walking through the wilderness, ending up in the promised land, all the way up to the Messiah, all of it was promised to Abraham. He's the one who receives the promises. That's what makes him special. That's what makes him someone that the Hebrews honor. He's the one who received the promises, including up through the Messiah. And he says, but this person that we honor so much, he gave a tenth to somebody who wasn't a descendant of his. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater, right? Whoever has the power is the one who has the power to bless. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham, not the other way around. Abraham gave him a tithe because of the blessing. He didn't bless Melchizedek. So the first thing we see in our order of Melchizedek versus order of Levi is that Abraham was his lesser, right? The lesser is blessed by the greater. Whereas for Levi, Abraham was his ancestor. 
He goes on and says, in the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. We're going to get to that in a second. He's like, the priest just collecting to die, but remember, Melchizedek lives forever. Again, metaphorically. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Okay, that's an interesting sort of construction here, but his point is this. He's saying that this is how much greater the priesthood of Melchizedek is than the Levites, because you could say that the Levites, all the tenths that they collect, that they give a tenth of that to Melchizedek. That he's the place where it really stops, because Levi was still in the body of Abraham, so to speak, right? He's, he hadn't been born yet through the descendants that lead to Levi. He hadn't been born yet. So, in a sense, everything that Abraham gives is as if it comes from his descendants' up. You can accept that or not. I think it makes some sense in the, in the where ge genealogy is important and lineage is important to see what he's saying. But the bottom line is, it's clear in all these ways that the order of Melchizedek was considered by Abraham worthy of respect and honor and greater than we would say the Levitical priesthood is. The priesthood of Melchizedek predates the priesthood of Levi. It's a deeper, older, more ancient magic. It's a deeper, older, more ancient law. And so he's trying to help the Hebrews understand, you're not giving up this ancient law of God for something less. You're seeing that this ancient law of God was already predated by something else which is now being fulfilled. And this ancient law of God was just a stopgap. It was just signposts along the way. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, he goes on to say, and indeed the law given to the people established the priesthood, then why was there still need for another priest to come? one in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. He says Jesus came and Jesus is the Messiah, but guess what? Jesus is not a Levite. He didn't come through that order. So if he intercedes from us, if, if the Levitical order was enough, why did we need a Messiah? Really, bottom line. If the law was enough, why did we need a Messiah? We've been waiting for a Messiah all this time, but it wasn't just so he could fit into the system. It wasn't just so that he could somehow be the best of what we'd already seen, because that only goes so far, as he's going to point out later. It's because we've been waiting for Jesus because the order of the Levites wasn't enough. And what we see in Melchizedek is that this better order is into that. This priesthood, which comes not from the Levites, but comes from something else and somewhere else. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He says, look, if, the, if there's a new priesthood, then that means the law that, or, that's, that ordained the priesthood has changed. It means something significant has, different, has happened, which is different. But again, he wants to point out this isn't a new thing. This is an old, old, old thing. This is a law that goes back to Melchizedek, rather than a law that just goes to the priesthood. The Messiah is not new. The Messiah is old, infinitely old, with no beginning, and predates what we saw in the law. So to be hung up on the law is to not go deep enough. It's to not go far enough. He of whom these things are said, that is Jesus, belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. Jesus was not a Levite. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Here's what's fascinating about that. They had known for a long time that the Messiah was prophesied to come through the line of Judah. But it had never occurred to them that that's interesting, it doesn't come through the Levites. It doesn't come through the priestly line. Wouldn't that be more elegant? Well, perhaps, except that God wants to be clear that this is a better priesthood, says the author of Hebrews. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. So now he's saying, 
not only do we know anyway that Jesus is not a Levite, but it becomes more clear why he's not. If we connect him back to this law and this priesthood and this deeper magic, which came before the Levites, then we can see, oh, that's the connection, that's the through line. If, a priest, if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is interesting. He quotes a psalm here. So even though there's only two verses that tell the story of Melchizedek, he appears a couple more times in the psalms. That's the only other place I'm aware of there and here in Hebrews. But in the psalms, it's clearly a messianic prophecy. That David, if he's the author of this psalm, and I think he is, but I have to go back and look. But David, or whoever the psalmist is here, he says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He makes this point the author's making. So this is not really the author making stuff up. I think it shows there was a tradition of understanding Melchizedek already as a messianic prophecy, as a messianic type. So he's probably drawing on a tradition that they already knew. And he's saying, but then he's saying, that's why he says that, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because another difference between the order of Melchizedek and the order of Levi is that the order of Melchizedek, the qualification, is an indestructible life. <laughs> it's being priest forever. So in the same way that our picture of Melchizedek is that he never stops being a priest, the reality of Jesus is that he never stops being a priest. Because he never dies. He doesn't stay dead. He has an indestructible life. So as our priest, he's the priest forever. Now the qualification for the Levites is simply a lineage. That you were born from a certain person. And when you compare the two, qualification by lineage versus an indestructible life, qualification by lineage seems sort of silly, doesn't it? It seems like that's such a small thing. But here's a fascinating thing about it. You can actually see how, yes, it's small, but it's a small approximation of the other. Think about it. If the real qualification for a priest is the continuity of an indestructible life, that you never die, then lineage is the closest we can get to continuity of an indestructible life sort of the continuity of the same family line, that's the closest we can get in a world where people die. So by making the priests of Bia a lineage of, of, of continuity of the same people, and it was very important to God that it always be that. Priests were never supposed to be anybody other than Levites. You can see that that's because why? Because it is deep law. Because it is a picture of the real qualification, which is a priest who is contiguous across all lives, who is indestructible. And once again, we see that he's not dismissing the importance of the Levitical lineage. He's actually giving richness to it by pointing out that it's just a picture of the deeper magic, of the deeper law, of the more ancient truths. Then he goes on. He says the former regulation is set aside. So what happens to the law then about the priests? Why is that no longer necessary? Well, because it was weak and useless. <laughs> For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. He's not actually saying that it's bad, right? He's not saying the law is useless in the sense of bad. He's saying that for, the, for what we need, it didn't make anything perfect. The priesthood was to intercede with God and was supposed to bring atonement, right? It was supposed to sanctify us. It was supposed to make us clean. But everybody knew that it was weak and didn't really do that. And if you look at the history of the Israelites, of course it never did that. But there's a better hope by which we draw near to God. And that better hope is in the Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek actually is perfect. That priesthood actually draws us near to God. Whereas the order of the Levites made nothing perfect and was only ever temporary. Even by its very nature, priests would die. And when they died, they were replaced by another priest. He goes on to talk about the difficulty of it being by lineage and being temporary when he says this. 
And it was not without an oath, right? He's saying Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek had an oath with them. Now, that makes sound confusing, but let's go on. He says, others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This is that same psalm. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Here's what he's saying. Think of the word oath as the promise for now. I think it'll make it simpler. He's saying that other priests became priests without any promise. In other words, they were born into it. Their lineage was they would be a priest. But God never promised that everybody in that lineage would be great. In fact, we see that some of them were terrible. Sometimes they even led people to worship the wrong gods. They didn't do their job even on a minimal level as you go through the history of the Israelites. Some of them were very good. Lots of them were not. But the point is that each one came as a king. <laughs> it came because not because it was qualified by an indestructible life or anything else. It just happened to be born into it. And so each of these priests didn't have a promise. God didn't promise, hey, this priest is going to be really good and he's going to actually do a good job and he's going to be effective. And in fact, God didn't promise that because even the best priests can only be so much effective. They wouldn't really make you clean. And that's the point. God never promised that the priesthood would be any more than it was. But when it came to Jesus, God makes promises that are huge that Jesus will keep. He makes promises that Jesus will be the priest forever, that he will intercede always, and that his intercession will be perfect, that it will never leave us wanting. It will never be less than we actually need. I think that's awesome. I think that's incredible. So the new covenant is also better because the promise is greater. Under the order of Melchizedek, the promise is greater. And under the order of the Levites, no real promise is made. Now, in fact, what's cool about this is that Scripture reiterates this idea over and over and over. When we lose sight of the fact that salvation is at its basic level a promise and not a requirement. See, we talk a lot about how does somebody, what do we have to do to receive salvation? And we talk a lot about what the, what the parameters are, what the limits are. And I, I, I understand the conversations, but I think they miss the point, which is that salvation is first and foremost a promise. And the good news, the gospel is called the good news, not the good opportunity, not the, the good deal that you can take advantage of if you strike now. No, it's, it's, it's the good news. And the good news is that God has made a promise. And the great news is that God always keeps his promises. And the promise is for Jesus. And it's a, it's a promise you can count on. It's not just a leg up. It's not just an opportunity. It's a guarantee. We're told that the Holy Spirit is part of that guarantee. In fact, we're told the Holy Spirit is a down payment on what's to come. And down payment is usually something that is small compared to what's to come. So to call the Holy Spirit a down payment seems crazy. When, it, when Whatever that means about what's to come. Right? Our anchor for our hope, as we told, were told last week, is God himself. His promise. It's not a vague theology. It's not uh, a based on our ability to believe. It's not based on our ability to live well. It's not based on anything. It's not based on the flawed uh, approach and, and application of a priesthood experience or a particular religious experience. It's not based upon what you do and how you do church and what your methodology is and which hymns you sing and which worship you sing and whether you sing hymns at all and whether you sing them 19 times or one time or whether you sing the third verse or you skip the third verse. None of that is what it's based on. It is based on, in fact, the promise of God. When we talk about the gospel, that's what we're talking about. God has made a promise to you. 
And that's where your anchor for the soul is. He goes on and he says, now there have been many of those priests. Which priests? The priests of the Levitical circle. There's been a bunch. The interesting thing is there's only two priests in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek and Jesus. And Melchizedek is really just a picture. So there's really only one. <laughs> I've heard some people even argue that Melchizedek in fact is Jesus. It's just in a pre-incarnation form. I don't know. But the point is, Jesus is really the only member of this priesthood. The only real member of this priesthood. But there have been so many Levitical priests from the time of Moses up to the time of the New Testament and beyond. There have been so many Levitical priests. And he says there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, right? Why were there lots of priests? Well, because they kept dying. And when they would die, then you had to have a new one. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So if you have any question about whether the author of Hebrews, even to this point, even after chapter 1, where I think it's pretty clear, if you have any question if the author of Hebrews actually thinks Jesus is divine, this should solve it for you. He lives forever. He has no beginning. He has no end. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. There won't be another priest. We don't have to wait for another priest. We don't have to look for someone else to do a better job. He does a perfect job, and he does it forever. As he goes on to say, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. How much is he able to save us? Completely. Completely. You don't need the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was the shallow magic compared to what Jesus offers. It was the, it was the newcomer, the fad, the fashion, the new stuff compared to the ancient nature of who Jesus is and what he offers. It's okay, he's saying to the Hebrews, that you let go of the law because it's been fulfilled, because the deeper truth of it has been revealed. Not because it was bad, not because it didn't matter, not because God changed his mind, but because the plan has all along been for Jesus to fulfill, to complete what the law was hinting at. He always lives to intercede for them. There's another interesting thing about Melchizedek, which the author of Hebrews doesn't bring up, but I want to bring up because it seems relevant for us, and I think it is a relevant point. And that's that Melchizedek is the only example in God's law of a priest and a king being the same person. In fact, as you go through the Old Testament, what you find out is that God is very, very adamant about priests and kings being separate roles, and that a priest should never be king and a king should never be priest. In fact, the thing that gets kings in trouble almost more than anything else is when they begin to function like priests. Any time that a king, and it starts with Saul and it goes through even Hezekiah, there's a bunch of kings in the middle that do this. Any time a king takes on the role of priest, and not even just because as a role of priest he might usher in false gods, that happens too. But even when they take the role and try to do the priestly duty as God ordained it for the priest, God gets very, very mad. And the consequences range from losing your kingship to losing your life. And it's really important to God that priests and kings remain separate roles. And I think it's because he understood that for the Israelites, those were two very powerful positions. And the temptation for corruption, if you were in control of both of those, was just too large. That the priest needed to be free from the king to do what needed to happen for the worship of the people. And so we, we have, right, we talk about the separation of church and state because even historically, we have seen the dangers of theocracy, right? When you have a king who is also the priest, there's just a lot of corruption possible. Or when you have a priest who's controlled by the king, there's a lot of corruption possible. 
they need to be separate roles. And so there's a lot of complexity and there can be a lot of conversation in our politics, that's not what I'm getting into, there can be a lot of complexity and conversation in our politics about what separation of church and state means, but let's be clear that the concept, the idea of them being sort of separate powers is not new, and it is very much along the lines of Judeo-Christian thinking. And I think that's even why our founding fathers, many of whom were devout Christians, saw the benefit of that. But in this case, we're saying that in the order of Melchizedek, the king and the priest are the same person. Because Jesus is not only, the Messiah is not only our king, he's not only our priest, rather, but with his indestructible nature, his indestructible power of life, his perfect empathy, his love and his grace, his ability to guarantee a better covenant, to make us righteous and bring us peace, he is qualified in the elder of Melchizedek to be both king and priest. And for every Christian, he is both. He is our king. We are to submit to him and serve him, and he deserves our first and best allegiance. He is the once and forever king, as well as priest. But he's also amazingly our priest, and it is us he serves, and for us he laid down his life. It is hard for us to grasp those two natures, that he deserves our complete and unwavering loyalty and allegiance as our Lord and King, but we should be delighted to give it as we embrace the reality that he is also our perfectly empathetic, gracious, loving priest who laid down his own life for us. Never has there ever been a priest like him, says the author of Hebrews. And never has there ever been a king like him. So the author summarizes all this. He talks about the, the other priests are constantly dying and being replaced by new priests. None of them are perfect. None of them could do it. And the author concludes this, this chapter and summarizes everything he said like this. He says, such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy and blameless and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. The law appoints high priests, as high priests, men in all their weakness. But that's not who our Messiah is. He's not another man sharing the weaknesses of the high priests. Of course the priestly covenant was good. But of course, compared to Jesus, it was useless. <laughs> because it was men. And it was men who lived and died. And were replaced by other men who lived and died. And some of them were good, and some of them were bad. And all of them had to atone for their own sins before they could make a sacrifice for ours. So they were constantly making sacrifices. I kid you not. You read in the Old Testament the number of sacrifices in the law. It was an unending job for the priests. They were constantly making sacrifices. Like all the time. Jesus makes it once. And it covers all of us perfectly and completely forever. It's all here in this summary. The perfect sinlessness of Christ. The once-for-all sacrifice, the love of God, the perfection that we receive forever. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the law, he says to the Hebrews, so you don't need to worry that you're betraying God, but he's also the eternal, perfect fulfillment. So you don't have to worry 
that it will change again. You don't have to worry that there's another fulfillment coming. You don't have to wait for the next Messiah. You don't have to wait for the next priest. This is it. This is the conclusion. And that's why he says, leave aside the basic elementary teachings about the Messiah. Now we see the fulfillment, and it's perfect. It's complete. He has accomplished everything. But see, this is also true for us. Such a high priest truly meets our need. We don't have to cling to old ideas, old notions of perfection. And we don't have to hold out for new hopes. We don't have to keep looking for something else to meet our needs. Jesus is unlike anything or anyone else. He is perfect. He's perfect. And please, do not distance yourself from the Lord by saying, well, he's good for you. No. Jesus is perfect for everyone. See, he is not only good for one person or another because he's not an idea. And he's not simply a notion. And he's not simply a truth. He is perfect. He is complete. Everything that you are created to be, he can make you be. But here's the truth. The other thing the author of Hebrews has been telling us for these seven chapters is that aside from faith, the value of this truth is nothing for you. It takes faith not to make this true. It takes faith not to make Jesus perfect. It only takes faith to say yes to the promise that God has made. The good news is there, whether you take it or not, whether you believe that it's true for you or not. If you say it's good for you but not for me, then you're right. But not because it's incapable of being good for you, not because it wouldn't be good for you if you took it. It's kind of like a vaccine. The COVID-19 vaccine is turning out to be very effective, but it's not 100%, nothing is. But let's say there was a vaccine that was 100% effective. Guess who it's not effective for, even though it's perfectly effective? People who don't take it, <laughs> right? Taking it doesn't make the vaccine effective. It's not a work you do to create the cure. But it only has value for those who believe it will have value and take it. And the same is true of the gospel. And this is the two things that the author of Hebrews has spent seven chapters trying to make clear. We're at, we're at kind of the, the peak of this. And from here, he begins to reinforce what he said before. But he also begins to show us the practical application of these things. Where do we go if this is true? But the things he's been saying up through these seven chapters are twofold. One is that Jesus is the answer to everything. He is the promise. He is the perfect fulfillment. He is the high priest that is above all high priests. And he is truly here to meet your need in all his sinless, eternal, indestructible perfection. But the other point the author's been making is that you need to let go of old ideas. You need to let go of old systems that Jesus doesn't fit into. He's too big for whatever law, whatever covenant, whatever religion, whatever system, theology, or philosophy you've built. He's too big for that. But it's okay. Because whatever custom, tradition, religion, law, theology, or philosophy you've been part of, the chances are that there are hints in it that have been there to show you the deeper magic. So embrace him. Accept him. This is not an argument 
to have on a college campus because it's a fun abstraction from the classes you don't want to take. This is not an irrelevant theology that only the fringe people at your company are part of. This is not simply something that is open to people who like church. This is for everybody. And the good news, which we have so often told so poorly, is that God has made a promise. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And that promise is life, and love, and peace, and righteousness, and grace, and joy. Believe. Believe. Thank you guys for hanging out with me. Chapter 7, I think it's kind of amazing the way that Melchizedek, you know, ends up being such a picture. And I think it goes just to, to show how God, from the beginning, has always wanted to be clear. And he's presented pictures and shadows and types for people. And I think the thing is true in your life, too. That there are things that are in your life he's shown you to lead you to this place. If you have not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ... I want you to think back. I think God's been wooing you all this time. And if you pay attention, you'll see the Melchizedek's in your own life. And if you are a believer today, and I know most of you listening to me are, then rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus truly meets our needs. Does that mean we never feel like we have needs? Of course we do. We live in a fallen world. We struggle. Sometimes our, 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 we, we lack faith. That doesn't make God love us any less or be any less powerful. But it means sometimes we miss. We don't see the Jesus that meets our needs as he is. And yeah, sometimes I think that there are things that Jesus will allow us to struggle through so we'll grow in our dependence on him. So do that. Take the advantage, the opportunity that Melchizedek's story to say, Jesus is a better priesthood than any I've ever met. I need to stop looking for something beyond Jesus to fulfill my hopes, and I need to stop holding on to old ideas that no longer work to fulfill my hopes. I need to remember that Jesus is perfect and has been. He is the deeper magic. He is the deeper law. He is the most ancient truth. Thanks for hanging out with us. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at Mac.com and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.